right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. Would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Payne D C. It has been quite the week in America. There is a lot to discuss, a lot to really just unpack and try to understand. One part of that is the the chamber that was under attack last week. Um, obviously, Capitol Hill, um, the United States Capitol, where I spent a good deal of my career. Um, and one of those bodies where a lot of the action was going on that pro- provoked, frankly, um, the, the attempted insurrection from Trump supporters last week, the U.S. Senate. Um, I spent a good deal of my career there. And I've got a guest on today that's going to help understand that chamber a little bit more from an academic perspective. And what's very, very special about this guest, among many things, um, she is a foremost expert um, in this space, but she's also a former professor of mine. She's someone who I, I'm happy to say I learned at the knee of at Brown University, and she's gone on to continue a very impressive career. Her name is Professor Wendy Schiller, and she is a professor of political science at Brown University. Professor Schiller, how are you? I'm well, Joel. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, Professor Schiller is going to forgive me. She has been trying for 20 years to get me to call her Wendy, and I (laughs) refuse to. Um, I will continue to call her Professor, and I will beg her forgiveness. So um, she she knows I can be very formal in that way. But Professor Schiller, how are you doing? Are you doing well? Well, I think all of us who are, you know, um, uh, respectful of the American democracy and the peaceful transfer of power are a little shaken up uh, this week, but I retain my optimism. Same, same. We try try to be optimistic. And, you know, I want to start the conversation there where you um, talk about what happened last week. And look, there's a lot of ways to dissect this. I I think a central um, thesis that I'm interested in kind of pursuing and just understanding a little bit better is that chamber, the United States Senate, um, a lot of the angry, illegal, disgusting behavior we saw from those rioters was frankly provoked by a couple of members of that body who were aggressively challenging the results of the election. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, um, among others. I know Rick Scott. Um, there were a couple of other members. But Hawley and Cruz have really taken a lot of incoming. And it got me to thinking a little bit, Professor Schiller, about just where the Senate is right now in terms of how it's positioned as a body and where it was in years past. You have written a number of academic pieces on this. You've written books on this. And look, I will give you just a big question to go wherever you want with it to start. Is the Senate broken? Well, the Senate, in the sense of, is the Senate broken? Is it is it not doing what it's supposed to do? And when we go back to think about the founding, the Senate was explicitly and on purpose, these were purposeful decisions by the founders, designed it to be smaller, designed it particularly to have six-year terms, which is such an important part of the Senate and just isn't discussed enough. Six years is longer than the president. You know, they set the presidential term at four years. Hamilton, to paraphrase Alexander Hamilton in, in the Federalist Papers, numbers 70 to 77, when he really talks about the presidency, essentially four years is long enough to do something, but not long enough to do too much damage. I'll get back to that point when it comes to President Trump uh, in a bit. But when we think about it, six years is longer than a presidency, and it's three times as long as the House of Representatives. 
it, Senate careers are long by definition. And they're long because the Senate was supposed to have a, a longer timeline. Think about the interests not only of the states, but certainly of the nation as a whole. It was smaller. It, there's no adjusting the size of the Senate except for letting in new states, unlike the size of the House, which was quote unquote adjustable based on population through 1929 when a law was passed by the Congress. It wasn't a constitutional amendment. It was a law passed by the Congress to limit the size to what it is today. So when we think about it, there are explicit dimensions of what senators are supposed to do that really go back to the founding. And that is to represent their constituents, but not necessarily all of them because there are two senators from every state. And that was also explicit. You know, they were trying to figure out how many senators to have from each state. And they you know, had about 1,500 pages of debate. If you, if you really want to go check out the Constitutional Convention debate, uh, Max Ferrand is, is the volume you want to look for, and it's long. It's annotated. And there's only a couple of pages where they talk about the number of senators from each state. They talk about whether they should vote as a, a, a team or they should have individual voting rights. They decide, okay, individual voting rights. Each of them has a six-year term, but then they decide, essentially, that there should be two, not one, because that's too small, and what if a senator were to get sick or to die, a state wouldn't have representation. And then three, in, that, in those days, would make it um, much closer to the House side. When we first started this country, there were about 65 members of the House and 26 senators. If you, if you multiply that, you get you know, another 13 senators. They thought that would be too big. So they, they set it at two, and they divided voting rights, and then they divided the electoral connection between the two senators. So you essentially divided up the classes of senators into classes, class one, class two, class three. So from 1789, class number one gets, um, goes, runs for re-election, uh, essentially, uh, in 1790 and then 1792 and 1794. So dividing up the classes is also a crucial uh, component of the Senate people don't really pay attention to. That's why there's only 34, maybe 36 in a really weird year, senators up for re-election in any given election year. It is less than a majority. Yeah, they try so to stagger it. They want to stagger it because I, I guess something that I've always learned, and look, this is as a practitioner, this is frankly as a student, the way I've always learned it is you want the body to have a mix of experienced hands who kind of understand the body, but obviously you want to have an opportunity for, you know, for, for new voices to come in. And also it's just fun. The point you made earlier, the fundamental difference between the Senate and the House is one that really just can't be overstated, that the Senate is there's a longer term by definition because it's supposed to be completely, um, you know, almost sequestered from the pressures of being a House member and being up every two years. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And Joel, another important thing I'm sure you know from, from all sides of your career right now is that it breaks the electoral connection between members of the same party, typically in the House and the Senate, because all of the House is up for re-election every two years. And they, they have an electoral incentive, particularly in these, in these times, to be extraordinarily loyal to their party and run on party messaging. But in the Senate, you have, you have people in the party running, but you don't have a majority of the Senate or majority even of the of the party running for re-election. So in that sense, this time the Republicans defended 23 seats. Uh, and that's it's a little bit more than a majority, but that's atypical. 
of of the Senate in an, any given election. So, so what you see is that the Republicans in the House will want to do something, but the Republicans in the Senate, even if they're running for re-election, the, those might agree with the House members, but the other Republicans who aren't running for re-election may not agree. So you don't have the same kind of partisan unity across the Senate and the House that you would if they were all running for re-election at the same time. Yeah, and I can tell you as someone who, again, has worked in both of those chambers, but I spent most of my career in the Senate, there is absolutely a, you know, forgive the term here, but like a caste system um, on Capitol Hill where people who feel like they, they are there are people who are Senate people and House people. I'm kind of a rare breed of somebody who's worked in both bodies. I did a year as a communications director for a House member, and I worked a total of six years for three to different senators. And I can tell you, the people in both of those bodies have very distinct ideas on governing based on how they were raised, so to speak, right? I mean, if you're, if you are a Senate staffer, you kind of think yourself as almost a part of a club and it, your, your members think of themselves as a part of a club. If you're a House member, you think you're, you're a cl- more closely aligned with the people, right? With uh, the constituents that you interact with every day. Um, and frankly, it, it's also important to note, and this, this might be something that people understand, but like the speaker, there's a reason why the speaker is higher um, in the chain of succession than the majority leader of the Senate, right? Because it, it's a closer body. It's closer to uh, the people. I'm not doing a good job of, of elocuting that, but you, you get my point, Professor. Oh, yeah, you're doing a, a, a great job of doing it. Madison said uh, members of the House of Representatives shall have a, um, a habitual recollection of their dependence on the people. So, so meaning, you know, habitual meaning every two years. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so Professor, you know, I want to, so I, I think this is all good background and good foundation. So let's kind of bring that into kind of present day. Um, you know, look, we're, we are a week and a half from inauguration. Um, it's clear that Chuck Schumer is going to be the majority leader um, for the next term of the Senate uh, after what happened in Georgia with Warnock and Ossoff being successful in their runoff elections. Um, how do you, how does your, just kind of from the perspective of an academic, someone who's really been in this for a long time and has seen historically where that body was versus where it is today, how do you put in context how far off the beaten path the current Senate is? Um, and look, you can't divorce it from individual actors like Mitch McConnell, the Ted Cruz's of the world, the Rand Paul's, um, et cetera. Also, the, the Bernie Sanders's and the Elizabeth Warren's, right? Like you have these individual actors, but just in terms of what the original intent of that body was, how far off the, the beaten path are we right now? Is it Have we been at this point before in, say, modern political history where the Senate just feels so disconnected from its original charter? Or do you feel like um, this is something that we've seen in the past and it's cyclical? Um, I, I, I'm curious about your perspective as a historian. Well, there's, there's two fundamental things that have happened. One is um, the external pressures of polarization. And this goes back basically to Gingrich, right? So in the 1980s, there certainly were distinct differences between someone like Ted Kennedy, uh, substitute like Elizabeth Warren for today, and Jesse Helms, who was a conservative senator from North Carolina, and substitute today, Ted Cruz. Right. And they knew the Senate rules and they used them to the max. Jesse Helms was a, a very, very effective, powerful, um, basically obstructionist for the conservative side. And Ted Kennedy was a very powerful liberal advocate for the for the liberal side. So you had division, but there were many more senators in between because the nation as a whole 
wasn't as polarized. They were they had differences, but they you know they, the conditions for becoming polarized, uh, notably more racial advancement and progress and activism, and certainly for the um, LGBTQ community. Uh, that was a community that did not have a voice in the 1980s. It was just beginning to have a voice, certainly for the for the mostly male gay community around AIDS. That's what activated that voice. And you had segments of society that just simply weren't part of the conversation. In the same way, you had a lot of rural, not only African-Americans who were still subject to a lot of discrimination and oppression, but also poor white Southerners who were still voting for the Democrats, but then all of a sudden realized maybe they should start voting for the Republicans. But the Republican Party platform helped the rich, not the poor. So in that sense, you had a shift of people kind of not really understanding their own interests and then moving more steadily towards one party or the other. At the same time, more of them are coming into the political system. So by the time you get Newt Gingrich in 1994, there's a, a much bigger audience for what he's selling, which is a, a very conservative platform, almost entirely dominated by white people, um, not necessarily men, but mostly white men, and was just espousing a complete rollback of the New Deal, of the Great Society and civil rights. But it worked. It won a lot of seats for the Republicans in places they hadn't won before. And so that was a big turning point, and it didn't affect the Senate until probably a full decade later, because you still had a lot of senators who are, came from the, from the period when you would try to compromise from the middle and they were senior, they were well known in their states and they could get reelected more easily so they didn't have to really go along with the new trends in their own parties. But then in 1996, what happens is 12 of those senators, conservative Democrats and moderate Republicans, they retire. They leave a huge gulf in the Senate. And at this point in time, uh, Bob Dole runs for president and then loses and leaves the Senate. And he leaves the Senate uh, during the campaign. And Trent Lott takes over. And Trent Lott was a firebrand from Mississippi before Newt Gingrich was a firebrand from Georgia. So they, Well, and that's funny, Trent, Professor Shirley, real yeah. quick. He was a firebrand, but by today's standards, he's a puppy dog. And, and that's, well, that's so funny to me because you're uh, right. You're absolutely yeah, right. Uh, here's where I disagree. Uh, I think he was a, uh, as much of a race baiter in his early, certainly early House career as uh, the white supremacy movement, uh, you know, Trump rhetoric has become. I mean, maybe the difference is that voices on the other side weren't nearly as, as um, loud because they were suppressed. You know, women, African-Americans, um, certainly immigrants, Latinos. You know, it may have seemed like Trent Lott was, you know, more benign but in fact, for that day, you know, in terms of perpetuating uh, all of those kinds of systematic structures for discrimination, he was right there with it. He was right there in it. That's so very fair. No, that's, so that's what, very the fair. difference that yeah. you're pointing out, which is a, a really important good evolution, I think, is that he had more friends who stayed silent. In other words, people would say, oh, yeah, all right, that's a Southerner. You know, he's a Republican in the South, conservative South. That's just the South. And that was okay. Uh, and it wasn't really until 1986, and this is a really important point that, that I think you're bringing up right now, uh, you know, uh, where in 1986, the Democrats win eight seats. They win control of the Senate back, and they win eight seats in that election. And really crucially, they win a seat in Georgia. They win, they, Richard Shelby was elected, when, and he was a Democrat at the time from Alabama. You know, the Democrats recapture, but they have a different voting base, which is um, African-Americans. 
And Shelby, when he gets elected in 86, 87, they're voting on the Bork nomination. Robert Bork, who was considered conservative on, on civil rights, he said, I know where my votes came from in 86. I'm not going to forget it. Much of the same rhetoric that Joe Biden uses today about the African-American vote and the Democratic sure. Party. So what's crucial then is that those senators come in from the South and they are Democrats and they are more moderate on crucial issues. But they get the, the, what happens is that the, the voting, um, let's say, foundation gets swept out from under them. And by the 90s, you know, Shelby has to switch parties to stay in the Senate in Alabama. He can't run as a Democrat anymore. I think that, for, that, for, that's right, so for right. For a moment there, 86, 87, 88, 89, you had a new Watch Fowler from Georgia. Uh, Sam Nunn becomes a little bit more liberal. You had a turning point for those Southern conservative Democrats. So the Democrat Party in the Senate could remain more moderate, more liberal, than, um, um, and be successful in the South than it, could, than it could by the time you get to 1996, when essentially Democrats in the South start to be wiped out. Well, no, and those are such great points, and I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you're bringing it up in this way because really, what we're talking about is like the incentive structure, right? I mean, the incentive structure has just fundamentally um, flipped on its head, and it's changed, um, and and we've kind of gone through these periods of realignment. Look, the in my political lifetime, the most significant realignment I can remember is in the period I think it was maybe the late. 2000 aughts in the early 2010s where republicans really just kind of started to radicalize and then trump supercharged it in the last five years but when you had people like mike lee primarying bob bennett right in utah because bob bennett wasn't conservative enough which again to a person like me the point i was making about trent lott is trent lott would be a moderate in today's senate republican caucus the same way that uh, somebody like, gosh, I don't know, Rob Portman is considered a moderate now. Rob Portman is, is as solid conservative as you can get. But by today's political standards, he's a moderate. It just feels like the center of the Republican Party has completely shifted. I'm talking mostly about Republicans. It's happened a little bit on the Democratic side, but I think it's been a little bit more acute on the Republican side. Again, you, you study this academically. It, are my conclusions there appropriate? Am, am I thinking about that the right way? Um, yes, I mean, uh, you know, there's a, uh, several political scientists. Uh, Nolan McCarty is one of them uh, in particular. And then uh, Sean Theriault, who also looks at sort of the Gingrich senators uh, and, um, you know, thinking about um, the senators who came in who were House members and then became senators, right? So that's another, that's sort of the generation, not the generation, that's sort of the next incoming class after Trent Lott uh, that, you know, that does that. And um, when you think about that, and you think about the effect of having that transformation on the ground amongst the voters, and then a creeping transformation in the Senate itself. For example, Trent Lott was driven out of the Senate for congratulating Strom Thurmond and sort of making an offhand comment that, you know, those were the days or, you know. The good old uh, days, yeah. You know, because Strom Thurmond ran um, as an alternative segregationist party candidate uh, for president in 1948 and was governor of South Carolina before he was senator. So just saying that in the early 2000s got Trent Lott kicked out of uh, his position as majority leader in the United States Senate for the Republicans. Today, that rhetoric would go nowhere nobody would be kicked out. They would say, it's my free speech and I can say what I want. So that's the extent to which the Republicans have gone, literally, I would argue, backwards in terms of, of social mores, of civil rights, of equality, in accepting that kind of language. And yes, Trump exaggerated it. Trump exacerbated it as well and encouraged it. 
But that was happening before then. You know, when Joe Wilson says you lie to the President of the United States in uh, the State of the Union, in the 1980s, he would have been removed from the chamber. They would have literally removed him from the chamber. been expelled. They would have said that's absolutely unacceptable. So the degree to which this kind of rhetoric ramped up you know, as you know, uh, between with the election of Obama, certainly as the first African American president, but in general, social media, the ability to send email, even the simplest thing about sending an email, and it's an anonymous computer email, you can be meaner to people than you ever would to their face. This whole cultural change facilitated by technology, of course, makes it much more magnified in these two chambers, the House and the Senate in Washington. And so you have behavior that just was deemed unacceptable. Um, and censurable. Uh, you lose your position, you lose your, you know, your seniority, you lose your committee spots. And now we're going to have to wait and see exactly how the Republican Party chooses to treat Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz after what is what was basically insurrection. Did they have the right to challenge the results? Yes, they did. Did they have any basis for it in fact or reality? No, they didn't. And that's what makes uh, their challenges uh, you could argue almost an abuse of the of the privilege that House and Senate members have to, to challenge the certification of electoral college votes. Absolutely. And the last point I'll just make um, before we move the conversation forward a little bit, talking about that Trump radicalization, my, my point there is, so, you know, you, you did a good job of kind of walking through like the last two decades of how that's gone. And then with Trump, the the middle, the, the moderate Republicans essentially were wiped out, right? Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski are it. There used to be, um, you know, there used to be people like Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, um, you know, just kind of going down the list, uh, the Bob Bennett, who I referenced earlier, who left before Trump. But the, the, the point being that there's no space for that anymore. This was Mike Castle in 2010 when Christine O'Donnell uh, primaried him, right? Those things were, were happening, but Trump supercharged it and com- completely created a disincentive structure where to be a Republican in the Senate, you almost had to mirror what your House colleagues were doing. You had to be as radical and as far to the right um, in the Senate as you were in the House. And, and in my experience, that didn't exist before. There there was such a separation between the bodies, almost like a um, you know, the, the, the point I was trying to make before was just a, a different club that you were a part of. And, and that behavior was looked down upon in the Senate. And now it's not because the incentive structure is completely flipped on his head. But, yeah, you know, I, I think you made the point wonderfully about just that that journey before Trump got there. I think Trump supercharged it. He did. I, I think the other important thing to, to recognize is the breakdown Uh, I think on both sides of the establishment political party structure. So the Democratic Party has had all sorts of issues. Certainly, you can argue at the DNC, you can argue um, with the Hillary-Bernie fight, with the Hillary-Obama fight in 2008. Uh, You started to see real fractures. I mean, Howard Dean built up the DNC uh, when he was there in the early 2000s. And you've seen steadily over 20 years how the party structure in general, obviously with Citizens United, and money, but also just disagreements, um, has really just broken down. And the Republicans had it together. They seemed to be able to withstand those pressures until Trump. And then their establishment Republican Party broke down, their organization, their mechanisms. And social media, uh, free ability to advertise, to mobilize, to communicate, that has been extraordinary in its impact on giving voice to the most radical extreme elements of a party, 
and enabling them to get enough votes to win on primary day. As we know, and you know, you remember from your political science classes, you know, uh, activists in the party, people who are super partisan, they vote in bigger numbers. They're a bigger share of primary voters uh, than they are in the general election. That's why Republicans worry about that primary, so Democrats now, but Republicans more so, because you're, you can win a general election, but you can't win your primary because the activists get out there and vote. That's how Trump did it. And the Republicans misplayed their use of proportional representation at exactly the wrong time. If they had kept winner take all, uh, they might have thwarted Trump, uh, but they didn't. And they made their change in response to Mitt Romney's uh, failed presidency because they, were, they basically said, we lost five to seven million voters on election day didn't turn out. We need to generate more contest here. And that's what they did for the 2016 uh, races. And that spills over to the Senate because you have Trump as a phenomenon and he brought in, you can argue Ron Johnson, who was losing that race a couple weeks before in 2016, he kept his seat. That's just one of a, a couple of Republicans who kept their seat who looked like they were in trouble. And he did it again in 2020. Certainly Tom Tillis probably uh, benefited greatly from that and his opponents uh, scandal so close to the election. But you can see Joni, where Joni this Ernst. combination. Joni free Ernst money, as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Free money. Right. And and also um, this ability to communicate for, uh, you know, uh, and, and organize and the general people who vote in primaries. Stay here comes the Payne podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, presented by Hip Politics Network. We are joined this week by um, an, an expert in the um, in, in the Senate and in so many things in the political space. Her name is uh, Professor Wendy Schiller. She is a professor of political science. She is the chair of political science at Brown University. She is my former professor, and she is educating us about um, the Senate, where it's been in the past, and where it is currently, and particularly in the context of. Um, just the political upheaval that we're in the midst of right now. Um, Professor Schiller, I want to advance the conversation a little bit. There's something that I didn't bring up in the first part of our conversation that I want to talk about now, and it's the filibuster. And, and look, I think we've kind of reached a critical mass point re- related to the filibuster. There's um, a couple of months ago, I had a guest from Fix Our Senate, an advocacy group that's trying to uh, get the filibuster, um, you know, to kill the filibuster, essentially. Um, a former colleague of mine, Adam Jettelson, just published a book, Kill Switch, talking about the centrality of the importance of getting rid of the filibuster to save the Senate. Again, just from your perspective as an academic, because a lot of these are practitioners, um, could you help put a little context around, historically, the role of the filibuster, what it was intended to be, and kind of how it's become bastardized, and the importance of that to that body. There's so many, frankly, I would consider myself an institutionalist, really, before the last few years. I cared about that as something to, to protect, but I think I've gotten to a place where so many others have gotten where you just feel like you can't really get anything done because this rule is being abused now like it wasn't in the past. Curious about your perspective as an academic. Well, so when you think about institutional change, there's been two institutional changes in the last 25 years regarding the filibuster and also senators' ability to offer amendments, and they go hand in hand. So because you know, Mitch McConnell came into the Senate in the 1980s 
and he figured out pretty quickly and he was up against he was a, he wasn't a leader in a party or anything but he wanted to make a reputation so he basically took on campaign finance reform and robert bird senator from west virginia who had been a longtime member very senior was the majority leader in those days and he wanted to pass um campaign finance reform because at that time democrats were getting killed in campaign contributions by independent donors corporations the PACs, political action committees and the union supported the democrats but they were always scrambling so they wanted to limit the individual um, contributions or and also elevate the capacity for PACs to give money. So McConnell single-handedly used to block that bill. He'd be the one to filibuster. He'd be the one to obstruct it. He cut his teeth on killing campaign finance reform. So the, the bill was introduced by Robert Burton in 1987. You don't get a pass in the Senate until 2003. That's how effective McConnell was with the filibuster. So you can see that's just one example. There are massive numbers of examples going all the way back to the 1930s when conservative members of the Senate, Republicans and Democrats, by the way, would filibuster anti-lynching bills. So uh, in 1919, you get a small change in the filibuster. It used to be that you needed, um, uh, you, there was no filibuster, there was no cloture. There was no ability to shut off a filibuster until 1919. Then they adopted a two-thirds rule, rule where you need two-thirds of the Senate to vote, to, to stop debate and move to a vote. And that's on every measure, you know, a bill or an amendment. Then you have to wait till the early 1970s, 1975, before they actually um, cut it back uh, and make it 60 votes. Then you got to wait till 1980 uh, to get to 30 hours of debate. So it's just been a slow erosion of the filibuster in terms of being able to shut it down. But it was used literally from the 1930s, essentially, all the way through. Uh, to block progressive legislation, in particular legislation that advanced the vote for African Americans, segregation, anti-lynching, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's why it has such a bad legacy. President Obama made this point also um, uh, at the uh, Democratic National Convention. So this is a key legacy. But McConnell cut his teeth on it. This is how he rose to power. This is how he became a party player. This is how he proved himself to the party using it. Uh, so. Uh, you know, that's the, the irony of the filibuster. But what happened in the late 2000s is when Harry Reid takes over again in 2007, after the 2006 elections, Democrats take the Senate back, he starts to basically not only prevent filibusters, but prevent amendments by filling the amendment tree. Yeah. And he did it, so you know this, he did it so frequently, you know, four times as much as Trent Lott did it, who did it all 13 times, I think. So he did it in the 40s or close to the uh, 50s in terms of that many times, where if you fill the amendment tree, senators cannot vote, offer amendments. You know, you have to vote on everything that's on the tree before the amendment space opens up. That takes away individual senators' ability to distinguish themselves. You can't make a reputation for yourself against the party or on behalf of your state if you have no mechanism to do it. Harry Reid did that. So it's the combination. And he did it, he said, because McConnell kept offering killer amendments and obstructing, and they couldn't get anything done. Well, fair enough. But if you actually make it impossible to offer an amendment or, you know, even, or make a speech on the floor, the only thing left that senators can show is their party affiliation. So it accelerated polarization in the Senate, you know, at warp speed. Yeah, I think. I, so, look, that's fair. And, we'll, and, and I'm going to probably sound like a good partisan here. So forgive me, Professor. I, I think you're I think you're right about the effect of kind of what the read steps were in the mid 2000s. I think uh, what a lot of progressives would argue is he had to do that because McConnell, and as he become, McConnell was very bold about at the beginning of the Obama presidency, he wanted to shut down any progress. He wanted to shut down any movement on 
judicial nominees. He wanted to keep those nominations open as long as possible. He was making it hard to function. I mean, you could barely name a post office in the Senate before that. So from the Reid perspective, that was necessary in order to just do the business of the country. But I think you're right about the impact that 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 had ultimately, right? The impact was it did elevate an air war in the Senate about, you know, rules and about what's appropriate and you could you could certainly argue that the death spiral that we're in right now, yeah, it was definitely supercharged by that. I think probably where people might have different opinions is about whether or not that was appropriate given the state of the country at the moment. Oh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's a perfectly valid point. I mean, what you're having now is that there's so many, you still have a legislative filibuster. You don't have a judicial filibuster anymore. And we've seen what happened when you lose that. You know, Trump gets to appoint a lot of uh, Supreme Court justices and there's not a lot anybody can do about it. So you'll see a more ideological, the court's already ideological, but you'll see a much more ideological court moving forward because the thing that actually forced moderation, which defeated the Bork nomination, for example, just one of those nominations, uh, is, is that you knew you had to get it past a few senators that weren't in your party. Uh, and so now that's gone. And that will, you know, radicalize the court eventually over time. Well, it already it already has yeah. really right. I mean, it, it really well, it really has kind of sort of. The, the I, last... I don't agree. I don't agree. The court's been radicalized yet. I don't agree with that. I think there's been a real mix of decisions coming out of Roberts Court in the last five years. That's fair. Uh, That's fair. But in terms of the the public perception, I guess is was was going to be my point. The idea that you don't have nominees that are routinely getting through the court with 70, 80 plus votes anymore. Really, Clarence Thomas was kind of the first really well Bork obviously but then Clarence Thomas was the first really really contentious nomination where you saw like almost like a 50-50 party line split um and then there were a couple of votes for Kagan I believe and I'm I'm not I don't have this right in front of me but I know there were a couple of Republican votes for Kagan there were a couple of Republican votes for Sotomayor there were obviously no Democratic votes um for many of the Bush and Trump, Kavanaugh, yeah, and, right. um, and Coney Barrett, yeah. So, so we'll see that. But, but I also want to, I want listeners to also think about, the, you know, sort of. There's a lot of deep policy differences. There's no question about that. No question. Social policy, economic policy, racial justice. There's huge division. But we saw with the court's decisions, from the district court to the appeals court to the Supreme Court on elections, that there was a limit. That, there, that, that there's a difference between being ideologically divided and being um, um, wholly partisan. That's what we've seen the difference. That's what we saw with the court in their rulings on the Trump cases. A lot of Trump judges, a lot, said, no, not going to fly. We're not doing this. And that's very important. That's extraordinarily important to the survival of the democracy. And that may be the water's edge. So you may have ideological divides, and if you do, then you have to get out there in the elections and win, like in Georgia. Uh, and what, one, one thing that I regret so much talking about the Senate is that it's a phenomenally historic event to have Reverend Warnock elected the first black senator from Georgia. It is just a phenomenally important event. Obviously, Kamala Harris being elected the first black and female and South Asian vice president. But I worked on a campaign as a kid in college to elect the first black mayor of Chicago. And it was a phenomenal event. It just socialized, you know, everybody who worked on it to think, okay, you can change things via election. You know, not to channel John Lewis, but it was a couple of years before John Lewis was elected to the Congress. And, and so you think about that and you think that's what Reverend Warnock should be. 
That's what he should be to the people who voted for him and worked for him in Georgia. But it should be he should be that to everybody around the country, thinking, how can we change things? How can sending somebody to the Senate, you know, matter uh, still, even if the Senate is broken? And that's been that's been, you know, totally overshadowed by the extraordinarily you know, awful events of last week. And I'm hopeful it can be resurrected in our conversation about the Senate sometime in the future after obviously President Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris are, are inaugurated. Uh, Professor Schiller, obviously, you know, Joe Biden campaigned on and it appears they've gotten a mandate primarily to heal the country, unite the country. And people have different ideas about what that means from a policy perspective. Um, thinking about the filibuster, do you think that the filibuster in its current state survives the, uh, the I guess, the first two years of the Biden presidency, the next two years of what will be a Chuck Schumer-led Senate? Do, do you think that Biden will force Schumer to not move on it? Does Biden take a hands-off approach to it? And I guess I'm asking you to be a little bit of a pundit, which I know I know you uh, you 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 are a political analyst for uh, the NBC affiliate there in uh, Providence. But um, I guess I'd be curious as to your thoughts about: Do you think the filibuster can survive? Because I'll put it to you like this: From as someone who works really closely with a lot of progressive activists in the Democratic Party, I mean, there is so much of a fervor to move off of the filibuster so that Biden can actually go big on some things, whether it's COVID stimulus relief, Obamacare fixes, uh, tax policy, et cetera. And I think there's a concern that he can't do that as the Senate's currently constructed with Mitch McConnell having a demonstrated history, as you laid out, of obstruction. So I, I'd be curious as to whether you think the, the filibuster survives the next two years. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's a great question. I, I do think it survives because I don't think they'll have the votes to do what they've done on judicial nominations. Essentially lowering, they didn't get rid of the filibuster. They just lowered the threshold for cloture, to invoke cloture and close debate. There's a difference, they didn't eliminate it. They just said you only need 51 votes to close debate rather than 60. So does that effectively eliminate it? No, not in a Senate that's 50-50 tied with some conservative Democrats, right? So you're even gonna have Warnock possibly, uh, from Georgia. And Ossoff sometimes have to vote against their party to survive. But I'm thinking more of Manchin, obviously, of West Virginia. Cinema, and a couple yeah. of other senators that may say, well, I'm up, you know, I'm coming up, or I, I can't, I don't want to go there. That's not what I want to do. Uh, you're going to, it's going to be very tough, I think, uh, to get 51 votes, uh, all the Democrats, and you know, remember, you need Angus King, who's an independent, and Bernie Sanders. And those two gentlemen, I don't think, are going to want to get rid of the filibuster because it is the last vestige of individual power. It's simply an extended speech from being recognized on the Senate floor. There's no nothing says filibuster per se. It's that you get recognized on the Senate floor, and in order to shut you up, uh, to put it um, bluntly, you know, then there's a mechanism that says, okay, if 51 of your colleagues or 60 colleagues say, be quiet, sit down, you know, we'll debate for 30 more hours, and that's it. You're done. That's what it is. Um, so it's really important to recognize that there is no actual guarantee of a filibuster. It's the extended right of speech. So, Joel, I have to disagree. I don't think it will go. I don't think there are the votes for it. And I, I'm... I think there are going to be instances moving forward when the Republicans control the Senate and there's some mixed opinion 
and you're going to want, whether it's from your senator or your ethnic group or your gender or your ethnicity, whatever it is you want to protect, uh, you're going to want the ability to stand up and stop something if you're a U.S. senator. And as I said, it's the last real vestige of the advantage of being a senator. And I, I just don't see it going away easily. Well, that's a that's a fair perspective. And I think I think functionally you might be right about that. I'd, I'd be curious about the backlash that would come at Schumer, who's got a I believe he's up in 2022. And folks would say he's probably concerned about a primary at home uh, from people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, Joe Biden obviously has some checks to cash um, in the in the progressive community who helped him get over the hump. But I, I think you're right practically that, look, if these members had their druthers, they wouldn't tinker with the rules. They would rather focus on deal making because you have to understand most of those people there, accepting people like Hallie and Cruz, they like the idea of being able to reach across the aisle and make a deal. Most of them are more like Joe, Joe Manchin than they are like uh, Ted Cruz. Um, by, just by definition. Yeah. yeah, great point. But let's also, as you are very acutely pointing out, there is a difference between um, challenging somebody in Queens and, and Bronx and Brooklyn, these small, dense areas, and winning a statewide primary against Chuck Schumer in New York. And I know you know so New York very well. You know right. New York very well, yeah. Right. So, and, and it doesn't have to be New York. You can make it, you can make it, um, you know, Illinois, you can make it a, a smaller population state. You can make it um, Iowa, for example. I mean, there is downstate, upstate, west, east. You know, you, yes, they get exaggerated. I'm sorry, they get, um, they get more important as you get a bigger geographic space and population. But, the, you know, states are very different from districts. And yes, Utah, which is a smaller population state, maybe more homogeneous, which we know it is, so Mike Lee could challenge and, and defeat Bennett in a primary. But for most states, that's a very difficult thing to do statewide because you know there are differences and some people want a more conservative, some people want more liberal. Very hard to do statewide in a more diverse state. So I'm not sure that threat is gonna be as powerful as it might be in a different state. Um, then the second thing is, Laws have to be implemented, and that's the work that I'm doing now. I'm doing a, a gender inequality across state lines because of federalism. And the fact is, states implement laws quite differently from each other. And even if you win at the federal level and you get a bill enacted into law, it's got to be implemented first by the feds, but then by states. And you've got to have some semblance of cooperation from a majority of the people in America to get that bill passed in, you know, implemented successfully. Otherwise, you're going to have an Obamacare situation where you're in law, you're in courts for 10 years trying to block it. So there is um, a really important policy implementation element to the forced compromise that the Senate creates uh, because of the filibuster. And Professor, one other point I'd make here, and um, we'll, we'll kind of wrap our conversation here shortly. But just, just talking about um, that chamber, and again, I know it intuitively as someone who spent a lot of, you know, cutting my teeth in my career there. You know, people, I think, assume if you have a big vote total, if you had, we had 60 votes, we had 60 votes when, um, you know, Barack Obama took over in 2009 and Harry Reid was the majority leader. Well, yeah, but you got to understand that like 25 of those votes are people like Blanche Lincoln. They're people like at that point, Ben Nelson from Nebraska. They are uh, Joe Lieberman's, right? And Joe Manchin wasn't there, but it was Robert Byrd at that time. And so, yes, you know, you're excited because you had all these votes, but those become the power brokers, right? The power brokers aren't really the people at the polls of the party. They aren't the super progressives, um, you know, the the firebrands, right? The Ted Kennedys. Yeah, Ted Kennedy, he, he was his own um, constellation. 
But the people who are the real power brokers are like a Joe Manchin who can go right now and grab five Republicans and grab four moderate Democrats and shut everything down in the chamber, which, again, is Mm -hmm. to the point of why I actually think the filibuster is such a hot issue, because I think some activists feel like that is a way to um, balance out what, what, what many people would probably perceive to be a boon period for moderates in the Senate. Like, I, I think even if the Georgia runoff didn't go the way it did, I think the governing scenario is pretty similar. Like, yes, Chuck Schumer is going to govern differently than Mitch McConnell, but it's still a body that is controlled by the middle. It's controlled by the people who can grab a gang of five people from the other side and do anything that they want, like they did with the COVID relief bill just a few weeks ago. That's all. I think you're making an excellent point. I'll actually go to the other side of this, which is that having gotten rid of the 60 vote threshold and replaced it with 51 for judicial nominations, you take some of the pressure off of uh, some of the policy agenda items Biden would have had to do as president or tried to do if he hadn't won the Senate. Because now you're going to get a fair number of judicial nominations. You're going to put progressives, liberals, moderates on the court, the federal court system. And you may or may not you know, counteract um, Trump. It depends how long you can hold the Senate. But you're going to get a lot of them through in the next two years, which helps sustain some of the Obama policies that have so much so far held up in court. So to me, having no filibuster, no ability really uh, essentially to block nominations uh, with some agreement, like you said, from the Joe Mansions of the Democratic Party. But nonetheless, having no, you know, having getting rid of that obstacle means that a lot of the policy advances Trump did not destroy or revoke or repeal uh, can sustain, can be sustained, and you don't have to do those legislatively. So that's where I think taking the Senate back takes some pressure off the agenda in the sense that he can focus on the very big, most important things that he has to get done that need to be done legislatively and not have to sort of worry about doing legislative work to sustain and keep alive the things that um, were part of the Obama administration's legacy. Uh, well, Professor, there is a lot here. I could, as you, I'm sure you recall, I could probably spend another hour talking your head off about this, but I will, I will relent and uh, just uh, one, thank you for your time today and, and just educating myself and my audience about what's going on. Um, also, before we go, I'd love for you to just talk about, you know, you alluded to some of the work that you're, you're undertaking there at Brown. Um, I know that there are some other work that you and I were talking about before we started recording. would love for you to share what you can about um, maybe some interesting uh, research that you're undertaking um, at Brown and where folks can find that. Um, well, I don't have a, I have a, a website, but I don't have an active website on this project yet, unfortunately. But essentially, uh, this project looks at domestic violence laws and uh, uh, gun firearm possession laws with relation to domestic violence, and really looking at the ways in which women in general, and certainly women in poor communities, uh, women from uh, historically underrepresented groups, immigrant women, uh, are you know made less secure in their home surroundings by laws that are either not implemented to their fullest or aren't adopted at all. And there's so much variation across states. You would think the Violence Against Women Act, which of course was not reauthorized by Congress, uh, the 116th Congress, uh, that, uh, that passed by basically Joe Biden in 1994, that would protect people at the federal level. And this is exactly my point. Federal legislation only goes so far. It has to be implemented. It has to be implemented well and thoroughly at the state level to do any good. 
And what we found is some states have, have really risen to the task and really taken steps, especially in the last five years, to really try to protect women from this kind of violence. But um, there's other states that have a long way to go. And, you know, 72% of all victims of domestic violence are female. 54% uh, of women who are murdered through domestic violence are murdered by gun. You know, these are, and, and we know there's research uh, done that has shown that if you install, or, you know, sorry, if you pass uh, laws that restrict the uh, putting guns in the hands of domestic abusers, you literally save lives. You literally see a decline in the murder rate for women uh, in those areas. So these, this is an incredibly important phenomenon. COVID-19 has made it much worse, I think, for a lot, of, a lot of women and a lot of children. And it's, again, getting back to my point, the U.S. Senate is a place where they could do more on this, certainly, and let's hope the Violence Against Women Act is finally properly reauthorized. But you also need cooperation from state elected officials, Republicans and Democrats, and county level officials. And you've got to bring people along when you want things to work well, even if they're passed at the federal level. So I'm hopeful that all the activism that's going on right now in all these ways really thinks about implementation at the state level and really thinks about what needs to be done in state capitals versus uh, the U.S. Capitol. Well, Professor, it's a great work that you're undertaking. And um, let me do a couple of other plugs for you. Uh, Wendy Schiller is a professor of political science. She's the chair of political science at my alma mater, Brown University. She's also um, my favorite professor from school, which she's heard me say many times, but I really mean it. I learned so much from her and continue to as uh, we've continued to stay in touch over the years. She is the author of several books, um, most notably for this conversation, Electing the Senate, Indirect Democracy Before the 17th Amendment, which I know you co-authored um, and is available for folks to check out. would encourage folks to do that. And uh, again, um, thank you so much, Professor Schiller. I really, I miss sitting in your classroom when a, a more quaint time where these, uh, these theories we could talk about and uh, maybe not such a hot environment, but uh, we're seeing a lot of them play out now. And um, I, I know I, I echo so many of your former students in that I learned so much in your class that I could apply to every day. So thank you and thank you for making some time for me today. Oh, thank you, Joel, and congratulations on all your successes, and I really appreciate it, and I hope you invite me back. It's the Here Comes the Fame podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hit Politics Network. Thank you so much, Professor Schiller, and thank you to listening. Take care. Have a good one.